John chapter 2, we've been in it for a while now, and um, uh, Gillian beautifully expounded it in the children's talk, and uh, forgive me if I uh, repeat some of that, but not much of it. Um, You've heard that being, I thought she was going to turn into wine, and that would have impressed me, but killed the sermon dead, so I'm glad she wasn't able to manage that. Um, Anyway, um, it's an intriguing passage because it's the first sign or miracle, if you want to call it that, in the gospel according to John. We've had the prologue, and we've had Jesus coming out across the desert, and we've had uh, John declare that he is um, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Uh, It's a a pretty meaty first chapter, and then we get into this first miracle. Um, We call it that at every wedding service we do. We mention Jesus' blessing marriage in that first miracle at the wedding of Cain of Galilee. And it's intriguing because, well, for many ways, but the first light intrigue in it is the relationship between Jesus and his mother at this point. It seems quite uh, quite cold. Jesus' mother reckons that he should be doing something, and he says, not my time yet, almost. What are you talking about, woman? But there's something more to the deal than that. Um, if, if we get into the passage and into the the text, there seems to be something going on between the two of them that's um, Jesus' mother uh, pastorally um, realizing that there's something has gone wrong at this wedding and then wondering what she could do about it and thinking, my son might be able to do something about this. And almost you can see them side by side and her saying, there's a bit of an issue here, Jesus. And Jesus said, what do you think? Don't you think I'm going to... Um, and whatever he says to her at that point, it's not a, I'm not going to do anything. Because he does something. When she orders, something went from Jesus to Mary to tell Mary to tell the people to fill the jars with water. There seems to be this intriguing, almost, there's a, almost a little comedy in it in the interaction between Mary and Jesus at this point. Mary doesn't appear again in the gospel according to John until she's at the foot of the cross. And then there's the wine. For a guy growing up in Ballymena in the 80s, uh, well, you understand I grew up in the 60s and 70s before I got to the 80s, but wine became more important at the end of the 70s. And wine, um, I came to faith at 17, which meant you couldn't even have had your drunk years because you hadn't got to them yet. And um, so, but there was this, you know, wine in Ballymena. This this was an awkward passage. This was an awkward passage because it couldn't have been real wine. I remember sitting in church house um, when I was working under Roz and um, we'd got a new uh, person in a a role about uh, drugs and alcohol and they came up um, to see, I think he maybe came to see Roz but I was the youth development officer in the Republic at the time and he thought he would get his chance with me and and he talked about um, uh, total abstinence and I went, well that's a great idea but of course it's not biblical to which he was astounded. Oh, no, 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 it's very biblical. And I said, well, let's look at John chapter 2. I said, I mean, Jesus turned water into wine there. And you're telling me that wine's a drug, like the drugs that they have that are illegal. Are you telling me that Jesus was a drug pusher? And he said to me, well, Jesus didn't drink the wine. He only turned it into the wine. Which seems to be the drug pushing thing to me. 
I'm not going to take it, but I'm going to push it on you. There were so many complications about this miracle. And literally, Janice and I in her home one night talking to another Presbyterian minister, he did explain to us that it was not point not not five percent proof. Not sure how he'd been back. He didn't, he didn't look that old at the time, but uh, we've always tried to jump over this passage. And, and, um, and Gillian did it very well. Because if it was not point not not five percent proof, basically what Jesus did was what Gillian did up there today. A wee bit of dilute juice with maybe something in it, and you put what my mother did that every Sunday. She turned water into Ribena. But actually, Daryl Johnson, who I always am quoting from, I spent three months at Regent College with Daryl Johnson, but he taught me so many things. Daryl, when he was lecturing and preaching at, uh, at Regent College, he thought this was the greatest of all the miracles because this is the only one that is impossible. You know, there's doctors out there who've healed people with leprosy. Well, not probably. There's not too many wards in Belfast City Hospital where people have leprosy. But, but some of the healings that Jesus did, we've, we, we see healings now as part of life. And though they were miracles, they weren't impossible. This is impossible. You can't make water into wine without fermenting and without time and without all kinds of things happening. No doubt the scientists will tell me differently after it, but it seems to me that, and it seemed to Daryl Johnson, that this is the, the most amazing, most incredible miracle of all the miracles because it was wine, but if it was dilute juice, then it's really not much of a miracle and we can just see it like my mother did on a Sunday afternoon. No, this is a fascinating miracle fascinating sign they call it in John's gospel. The greatest miracle, Daryl Johnson would call it. Because in some ways also Daryl would see that the sign of the wine and the sacrament is almost some, on the week of prayer for Christian unity, can I use the word? There's something transubstantiation about this, not literally, but he's turning the water into the wine that will become the blood that will be shed in abundance for there's signs here of something else, which is true because this is the key to the whole rest of John, the gospel according to John. Um, the title I have is 210 because you know my numbers are 1010. 1010 from the same gospel. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, have it in all its fullness. But actually 210 is uh, almost the, the very same thing. It gives us a clue eight chapters before it happens. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you saved the best until now. That this is the best wine. This is abundant wine. This is life in all its abundance. Grace, my word that I use a lot, is only mentioned four times in the gospel according to John. And they've all gone already. They're all in the first 17 verses. But what the rest of the gospel according to John does is it brings out what grace tastes like, looks like, smells like, sounds like, and feels like. The whole of the, the editorial that John did to the stories of Jesus is all about revealing time and time and time again the fullness, the abundance of grace in the everyday situations that Jesus finds himself and that we should find ourselves in. We should be able to feel and see and touch and taste and hear 
the grace of God. And it is abundant. Gillian said two days, these weddings. I read a commentary that said a week. These people are plastered by the time Mary turns to Jesus and says they need wine. They probably don't need wine at that stage. They probably need a good cup of black coffee. But the abundance of it and the best of it is revealed right at the end rather than the start of the wedding. The gospel according to John. The baskets feeding the 5,000. There's baskets left over after he's fed them. The fish caught in that post-resurrection. There's loads are caught when they've been fishing all night like they always do because the Bible never describes. It never catalogs the fact that Peter ever caught anything. That's why it was easy for him to become a disciple. He couldn't catch one fish in the whole of the gospels. But Jesus was always there to bail him out and there was an abundance of fish when Jesus was there. Abundance is a word here that we need to hang on to and take hold of because abundance, fullness, the best, the choice is what Jesus has come to bring us. Let me throw an anomaly in here. Let me throw a wee curveball into the midst of this. Calvin have been in the Newell room for a couple of weeks apart from a few days up on my beach in Valley Castle, and they've been listening to various incredibly interesting people. It's a, it was a good program team. You got lucky as well, because you end up in places and bump into people that we didn't have planned in the program. But one of the people that spoke to them, and I'm not going to mention his name because I haven't reached him yet, so that he would allow me uh, to do that. One of the people that spoke to them said these words, Fitzroy, I want you to hear these words, and I want you to hear these words with, uh, with depth, with poignancy, with sadness, and with then a sense of we are going to be a community that are not going to allow this to happen. This is what this person said to the Calvin group. My Christian journey almost robbed me of the wonder of being human. My Christian journey almost robbed me of the wonder of being human human. Now can I say there's a generation out there who might ditto that but maybe not as artistically or creatively as those words are said. My Christian journey, the Christian journey this person was once on, almost robbed them of the wonder of being human. It's profound. It's tragic. And it's got nothing to do with the gospel according to John. Whatever journey of faith, whatever journey of Christianity that this person was almost forced to experience or was unfortunate enough to experience has got nothing to do with the gospel that we read about in the scriptures. But I immediately understood it. Because there was times when I felt it. The narrow puritanical legalism that many of us grew up in that was those conversations about wine where you couldn't go what you couldn't do what you couldn't experience all those things were robbing people of the wonder of being human and it seems to me that if discipleship is anything if spiritual formation is anything then the aim of spiritual formation should be to give us the wonder of being human. That's what it's about. Your Bible study, your prayer, your evangelism, whatever you teach in discipleship, the end result of our discipleship should be what the gospel of John is all about. 
teaching us to feel and taste and look and see the full wonder of being human. And tragically, tragically, for one of the leading figures in our society, the Christianity they grew up with almost robbed them of the wonder of being human. The dualism that tells us about the spirit and tells us about the material and tells us that there's something bad in certain places and things and we should stay away from those things and stay in some bubble. That robs people of their full humanity. And if we want to think about it in the context of where we are here, where is the incarnation? John has told us in chapter 1, this is the word becoming flesh, to move into the neighborhood. Not to avoid the neighborhood. Not to set up some church building in the corner of the neighborhood and hide in there. That's not what John chapter 1 tells us. John chapter 1 tells us that the word became flesh to move into the neighborhood. And this incarnation, this word made flesh, this Jesus is going to be at weddings where they're going to drink for a couple of days. He's not going to avoid the wedding. He's going to be right in the middle of the wedding. He's going to be right there where humanity is because that was the point of his arriving. To move into the middle of the wonder of our humanity in all its brokenness and all its taintedness with the possibility of giving it abundant new life. There's no distinction in the Gospels about the life of Jesus. There's no distinction between sacred spaces and secular sites. John found himself just by work or vacation in a downtown Belfast bar this week, no doubt in witnessing with the gospel and a few tracks in his back pocket. And it said on it, was it welcome to sinners? Hey? Sinners welcome. There's no distinction between sacred spaces and secular sites. I had a friend at 20 years of age who was playing rugby for Ireland and gave it up when he came to faith because he didn't think that God would want him to be doing that kind of thing. That was what he was good at and he should put to death those things he was good at and do something else instead. And you two walked the beach in North Dublin thinking of giving up music for the same reasons because people were trying to rob them of the opportunity of being fully human. But let's get back to the text. In this text, in this passage, in this first sign, Jesus, Jesus' mother, God, and I've got to be careful how I put those three things together in Northern Ireland or you'll be calling me a Mariologist or whatever else. They care. They care about the minutiae of life. They care that somebody's wedding has gone wrong. They care that that family in that village that their reputation might not be good from then on. That people might be talking about them. Oh, did you know them? Oh, dear, love them. The wine ran out. It wasn't that a terrible thing. Well, they should have planned it better. Oh, my goodness. We won't go back to one of their weddings. Jesus, his mother, they care. And they care enough to bring abundance into the life of this community. Now, this morning, it seems to me that as a pastor, what I want to fight for is that nobody's going to rob you of the fullness of the wonder of your humanity. Are you aware that you're loved, that you weren't born to be 
abused or you weren't born to be rejected or you weren't born to suffer. You were born to be loved. And that Jesus this morning comes and endlessly, I tell you, because it's our theme right here in Fitzroy, Jesus has come that you might have life. And he's not one to give you life that just makes it. Jesus wants to take whatever you've been given, whatever you were born with and the gifts that he gave you at birth, he wants to make that as abundant as it possibly can be, as full as it can possibly be. And never forget that actually the fullness of life on earth means the fullness of brokenness and the fullness of emotional sadness and the fullness of grief as much as it is the fullness of joy and the fullness of excitement or thrill or whatever else. God wants us to know the fullness of our humanity. But then just to throw it out to us, I think he calls us to slightly more than that because he never, never, never in the Bible are we given abundance just for ourselves. Always for sharing. Always for thinking about the edge of the field for the people who have nothing. Always about tithing. Always about giving. Always about serving. Always about putting others beyond ourselves. So the good news and the caress of this is that Jesus has come to turn the water of your life into the wine of your life that you might be able to live life in all its fullness. But the challenge and the caress is this, Fitzroy. The challenge and the caress is this, Steve Stockman. The challenge and the caress is this, whoever you are. That we need to be tangible abundance givers into the world that we live in. We're not called to just give. We're called to give abundantly. We're called to give lavishly. We're not just called to forgive. We're called to forgive abundantly. And we're called to forgive lavishly. Like the Amish community. You remember the story. I've told you it before, but it's been a while. Those wee girls shot dead in that schoolhouse in Lancaster County. And the Amish community, by midnight, are at the door of the murderer who'd killed himself, to say to the wife and children, we will pay for the education of the children of the murderer of our children. They didn't forgive from a distance. That's doctrinal. They forgive in the midst of the neighborhood because the gospel is not doctrinal. It's tangible. It's to be seen and tasted and felt and experienced. Lavish forgiveness. The Amish don't forgive you. They make friends with you. You come for meals for years afterwards. Why? Because they've got that part of Jesus' gospel absolutely right. A bomb went off in Derry last night. We don't need that anymore. We don't need that anymore. But what it's going to take to make sure we don't get that anymore is abundant forgiveness, abundant love, that we go over the top with this gospel thing because it might be the very thing that transforms us and our society into the best that it can possibly be. This week.
in my life, in my sphere of work, in my city, in my country, and in my world, how can I be an abundant grace giver? How? Lead us, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may we be observant in the neighborhood you've called us to to see what the needs are around us as Mary was at that wedding. And may we be willing not just to respond to it, to fix it, but to go abundantly more and lavish your grace into the needs of our homes, our families, our streets, our city our country, our world. May we know the abundance of life that Jesus came to bring, but may we know that it's not for hoarding. We're given it to share. May we taste and feel and touch and experience the abundance of Christ. But may everyone we come in contact with this week, accidentally or in our diaries, be able to taste and touch and smell and see and experience the the abundance of Christ's grace through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.